listen to this uh, kind of an interesting story. I think um, William Peters was working as a volunteer in a hospice for the dying when a strange encounter with a dying man changed his life. Uh, the man who's sick, his name is Ron. He has uh, stomach cancer. When Peters, who was the, uh, the volunteer, stopped by Ron's bedside around lunch one day, the frail man was semi-conscious. Peters read passages from Jack London's The Call of the Wild as the man struggled to, ha to hang on. What happened next, Peters says, was inexplicable. He felt a force jerk his spirit upward and then out of his body. This is the volunteer, not the guy who's sick. He felt a force jerk his spirit upward out of his body. He floated above Ron, the sick man's bedside, looking down at the dying man. Then he glanced next to him to discover Ron alongside him, looking at the same scene below. Peter says he then felt his spirit drop into his body again. The experience was over in a flash. Ron died soon afterward, but Peter's questions about that day lingered. He didn't know what to call that moment, but eventually he learned that it wasn't unique. He shared what is commonly known as a shared death experience. You know, we hear often enough about, I think, what are usually called near-death experiences, right? Um, this was a little different in that, first of all, they're calling it a shared death experience. And the difference is, it was shared. Um, it's not just the dying person who gets this glimpse of heaven. Allegedly, it's the person who's, who's with the dying person. Um, I'm sure an article I read about these experiences, um, and they talked about a number of them. They say that it's common among soldiers, people who've experienced combat and witnessed the death of a, a comrade, hospice workers who see death the process of death kind of all the time, or just relatives. You know, when you do, somebody you love is dying and you have like kind of a bedside vigil, you're there for hours at a time. Anyway, this article says this is, it's far from uh, uncommon. It happens a lot. And it also talked about the questions and the doubts and the skeptics. They say that, um, you know, hallucinating, hallucinations are common when anesthesia is involved. So if somebody's all, you know, drugged up because of the pain they're encountering, well, hallucinations are, I don't know, maybe almost even the norm. And then the whole loss of oxygen to the brain, same thing. When that happens again, hallucinations. The difference in these examples is that there's no oxygen loss. There's no anesthesia because the person who's experiencing it isn't the dying person. 
So that kind of argument against these doesn't really fly. Um, I mean, here's another one. This, was, uh, this goes back to World War I. It was, uh, this soldier was huddled in a foxhole with his best friend when an artillery, artillery shell exploded, killing his friend. This is what he says. He felt, or it's the description, he felt himself being drawn up with his friend above their bodies and then above the battlefield. He could look down and see himself holding his friend. Then he looked up and saw a bright light and felt himself going toward it with his friend. Then he stopped and returned to his body. He was uninjured except for a hearing loss that resulted from the blast. Remember about eight years ago, maybe, there was a big bestseller. It became a, a movie. It's called Proof of Heaven. If you read that, maybe, or you heard about it. This neurosurgeon, this non-believing, atheist neurosurgeon, goes into a coma for seven days. He gets uh, meningitis. And uh, he comes out of it, which, number one, they said was pretty much inexplicable, kind of miraculous. They don't understand. There's just no way he should have recovered, but he does. And then he proceeds to tell people about his experiences during those seven days of, in coma, uh, of being in a coma. And he said he, he visited heaven, and he met God, like in conversations with God. Well, he became a believer, he became a Christian. It's kind of changed his life. Um, you know, uh, do you have to believe that? Do you have to believe the, the World War I guy? Do you have to believe the guy in the hospice? I mean, of course not. I mean, is it a requ requirement of being here? Of course not. Could there be other explanations? You bet. But is it possible that they're all true? You bet. I think because of what we celebrate today. The saints. All of the saints. Because I think what we celebrate today is, is really just a... Or those stories are a reflection of what we believe about the communion of saints. It's part of, it's part of what we believe it's one of those things that we kind of, we reference it almost like without even giving it much thought. I think most of us anyway. So what does it mean? What is this idea, this belief that there is this communion of saints? Well, I think it's this, simply enough. We are still in communion with those who have died. We're still in communion with them. They're not just some club somewhere far away that one day we will see again like this. Like they're still with us. So we can still relate to them. We can till, still speak to them. And we can be spoken to by them. is still with us, just in a new way. I remember 
doing a funeral uh, for an elderly man who, um, I remember talking to his son, the man who died had had this uh, pretty, pretty severe stroke. I don't know, maybe about a year before he died, and which left him um, completely unable to speak. And I think, I think half of his side was completely paralyzed, his right side, and he, was a, he wrote with his right hand. So he just, yeah, he was probably about 90, so it was like he, he couldn't possibly speak, and practically he couldn't write. He couldn't work a keyboard on a computer. Like he, he really couldn't communicate anymore. Mentally was sharp. And I remember the son just saying to me that he just learned to connect with him in a, in a different way that last year. It wasn't the same. It wasn't as good. It was tough. But he was still there. He couldn't converse with him, but he was still there. Or he did converse with him, but it just wasn't, you know, the, the, the exchange that he was used to. But he was still there. Damn it, that's the point. You know, there's a priest. Um, he's a... Uh, Theologian, he's a great writer, spiritual writer. I, his name is Father Ron Rollheiser. Um, I often quote from him. Um, actually, more often I just steal from him. He's got really, he's got great ideas, and I don't always give him credit. In fact, if I ever ever say anything up here of of any remote value, it's probably coming from him. Um, he's just, he's great. Um, What I love about him is he's, he's brilliant, clearly very educated guy, but also very real. Like you, he's not over your head, he's not beyond, you know, he's like, he speaks like very in, uh, complicated truths, but in, in simple ways. Anyway, he tells this story in an article, and he writes these very kind of short articles. That's why I, I reference them a lot. He, um, was at this conference out in the West Coast years ago, a religious ed conference. There were 6,000 people at it. And I think it was a weekend. He was a speaker. Uh, they had a mass on Sunday, probably around noon. And that was going to be the end of this conference. And after communion, um, the music has stopped, and it's very quiet. And this couple gets up, this married couple and they go to the microphone and they start to tell their story. They lost their son, who was 12, about a year before. He died of cancer. And then they talk about um, the day after he died. They're gathered together with you know, family and close friends, sort of just kind of huddled, I guess, together in their home, trying to regroup and uh, they get a phone call from their next door neighbor or the person across the street. And he says, uh, come out, come on outside. I, I, you need to take a look at this. Uh, you're not going to believe what you see. So they come out. And this is what, this is what the priest, or this is what uh, the priest wrote about, but it's really just what these, this mother and father said. They rushed, um, 
They rushed to look, and there before them was a rainbow, the like of which they had never seen before, in terms of its spectacular color as well as its scope. They were, of course, taken back, taken by its beauty and by its symbolism, but they were even more taken by the clear, unmistakable intuition that it was their son who was doing these particular fireworks for their benefit. As they watched in awe and in faith, the mother heard her son say to her gently, Mom, this is for you. And because it's hard for you to believe it, I'll do it again the same way for you tomorrow at this time. All doubts that they had had that this was some trick of their imagination or wishful thinking induced by fatigue or sorrow or longing were erased the next day when at exactly the same time the identical rainbow reappeared. Their son was speaking to them and they, I'm sure, will now forever know what it means to believe in the communion of saints. Like I said, I, what I love about this writer is he's very, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word modern, but he's, he's got a very realistic faith. He's a, very, he's a kind of a contemporary thinking guy. He's not, I mean, he's a believer, but uh, I'd say he's also a kind of a, a healthy skeptic. I think he's got a healthy faith, I think. But this is what he concludes. I believe their story not just because they appeared to be very balanced and normal people, nor because they had enough nerve to speak it in front of thousands of people. I believe it, I believe it because what they shared is not something weird or new age or even all that extraordinary. They just spoke about the saints our communion of saints. I remember uh, uh, somebody, I was at a barbecue, I mentioned this once before, a conversation I had with a guy I met at a friend's barbecue, and he posed this story, question to me. A kid, or his, his friend's son, almost died, he, uh, he almost drowned. And he was about three or four years old. And he wandered into this construction site right next to where the, they lived. The father rescued him. But, they, well, they thought, he, they thought he, in fact, had died. He was seeming, he was unconscious when they pulled him out. Got him to the hospital. He was fine. And they're talking to him. And he's four. And they asked him, like, what happened? And, or he just started telling them what happened. And he said he, he fell into the hole. And then he... And then he said he, he was swimming, and then he said he fell, he fell asleep. So he was probably drowning, right? He was probably going unconscious. And then he said, um, when I started to fall asleep, I saw Uncle Tommy. And I tried to swim to Uncle Tommy, and he said, and he shook his head no. And he stepped away, Uncle Tommy. Well, the parents were stunned by this. Um, and again, I don't mean anything to all of you right now, but... There was an Uncle Tommy. In fact, he died six months before this experience. So this four-year-old knew Uncle Tommy. In fact, he's 
probably the only person he ever knew who had died. Anyway, they were like, what? Like, why did you say that? They were, I don't know if they were angry, but they were like rattled by it. Like, why would he bring this up? This was the, the brother of the father's brother. Like, to just kind of hear about that in this very tough time. Anyway, the guy at the barbecue tells that story. He wants to get my take on it. And by this point, there was like a little bit of a crowd had kind of gathered around. And they wanted to hear what, what I thought about it. And I, and I remember the first response was like, um, I was totally a skeptic. Like, or thought I needed to be a skeptic, I guess. I was like... The whole oxygen to the brain thing I mentioned. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm talking about with that, but I, but I mentioned that. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, I heard about that. And I could tell they were kind of like, people weren't, you know, people like, yeah, you know, maybe. And then I, I said, like I said, something about, you know, he was four. You know, maybe his kids have wild imagination. Maybe he just made it up, you know. And again, kind of like, mm, you know, they weren't really buying it. And, and then I remember saying, maybe he saw his Uncle Tommy. <laughs> like, maybe he told the truth. And people were kind of like, you could see heads nodding, like. I think for, for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, like, we want to be, we're skeptical of that. And I'm not saying we should be, you know, signing off on every, everything that ever happens out there, things that are really just coincidences and we make them more than they are. I think we all know people who overly spiritualize stuff. They, put good, they connect God to things that are, I suspect, not so God-connected. But I also know me, and I think people probably like me, who our instinct is to say, oh yeah, it had to be something, you know, like, it can't be maybe what it was. When I think of my father, my father's really the, the most important person in my life who's ever died. I talk about my father a lot, but I don't really talk to my father. And maybe this day is a wake-up call to me that I should. The way I used to? No. Will it be the same as it was when he was alive? Of course not. But I do think of him as sort of in this club that's far away that I hope to one day get entrance into. But it's kind of like he's gone for a while. And he is, but he's also not. If we believe in what this day is about, I also know this. After Mass this morning, I know some of you are going to come up to me and you're going to have a story. <laughs> you're going to have your Uncle Tommy's story. Because it always happens because of the communion of saints.